Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I am with a new friend, Sally Hughes, who is a professor at the University of Miami. Here, by the way, is in a shitbag, fuck-awful, flea-bit hotel with no hot water called the Hotel del Sol, but it's in a wonderful place, which is Cartagena de Indias. So, Sally, how are you, minus hot water? Um, I'm fine now that I've had my cafe con leche. <laughs> Very good. Now, do you want to do this in English or Spanish? Uh, What's your target listener? Uh, either. Uh, let's let's go into English, and I, I have a code switch. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> you flick the switch, we can flick the switch. So, tell us what brings you to Cartagena. Uh, a very wonderful uh, uh, network contact. Um, a student who did our doctoral program at the University of Miami is now the um, director of Columbia's first uh, PhD in communication. And he has organized, along with his colleagues, uh, several events uh, in Barranquilla and uh, Cartagena as the Colombian um, Association of Communication Departments, as well as um, a new association of um, communication researchers has their annual meeting so uh, I got to go to the, come to this wonderful city and uh, see a very effervescent group of communication researchers form their first association and meet wonderful people like you so and in <laughs> fact that particular ex-student of Sally's Jesus Arroyave is a previous podcast victim. Oh, <laughs> wonderful. I'll have to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're in Cartagena, your first time in Colombia. Yes. And you were speaking, I know, because I was lucky enough to be at your talk, about some of your sociological theories of journalism. Uh-huh. And also sharing some of your applied research where you've done questionnaires with a bunch of Mexican journalists right. about violence issues. So I wondered if you might tell us a little bit about that research, which I know involves not only you, but some other collaborators and is sure, sure. comparative. Sure. So um, the, the idea of sociolog the sociology of journalism um, is not mine, but <laughs> I came to it from sort of a different route than, than many journalism researchers. Um, it, in the early 2000s, um, an article by Schum Schumacher and Reese um, talked about the levels of influence on um, journalism production. And uh, also in, in, in uh, England, uh, McNair's book, The Sociology of Journalism, which is, um, I think, more on a broader undergraduate level, uh, came out about that time. Um, and there was also a lot of interest in field theory um, and how that, that related to what journalists do and, and how uh, journalism, um, why, it, why, it's, uh, why it's practiced as it is and how, why uh, journalism as a cultural product comes out as it does. And so, so they looked at these different levels of analysis um, that are, uh, I guess, um, more linked to the idea of sociological analysis. Um, at the same time, I was in Mexico doing my dissertation research. This was uh, 99 2000, and 2000. 
and I was doing more of an ethnographic study. Um, and I went in uh, with this idea that the changes we were seeing in journalism at the time would be due to changes in the political economy. Mexico was going through this political transition, um, um, an electoral uh, transition. Uh, Mexico had a, a, a single party state for 71 years, um, but not in the Soviet type, more of a, uh, a system of, of carrots and sticks, mostly carrots. Um, but, you know, as the economy crashed in the early 80s, things, you know, things started to build up. And there had actually been, you know, probably every decade, uh, a group in society pressuring to open up Mexican politics. And, and it all sort of came to a head in the 80s, and journalism was changing. So, you know, I went in thinking, oh, it's going to be, you know, changes as, as, the mar as the market becomes important, as politics liberalizes. But really what I saw... Uh, once I got in the newsrooms, is there was something going on in the newsrooms, and and so I used ideas about organizational culture to see you know why some newsrooms were changing much more quickly, why why others remained sort of in the in a passive mode that supported the the old system, um, and then you know why why television to the degree it did change changed much later than some of some of the press. So, 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 you know, long story short, the, the different levels of analysis of why journalism does what it, you know, comes out as it does, um, interested me. And it really wasn't until after I did the ethnographic work that I linked it to all this other things that were going on in journalism studies, um, which, you know, to me is fine because I'm really sort of a ground up researcher and I like, I like to look at questions on the ground. Uh, moving forward, um, you know, I produced a book on journalism uh, and politics in Mexico out of that project. Um, what's that called? That is called uh, Newsroom in Conflict. Newsrooms in Conflict, Journalism and the Democratization of Mexico. And when you look through it, you know, through the lens of today, you're thinking, you know, conflict as in violent conflict. But no, it was really a conflict of paradigms. Um, because you saw quite clearly in, you know, the newspaper front pages, um, that you know they were following different worldviews, different ideologies of journalism, different political ideologies in the sense of a new civic discourse was coming up, and and some of the journalistic field was following that discourse and and maybe even leading it. When you look at some of the earlier uh, publications that come, you know, start to really form in the in the mid eighties. Um, so so that was that, and then um, you know I sort of stepped away to work on a. Another project, although continued my interest in Mexico, continued going. Um, and a couple, uh, I guess about two and a half years ago, a, um, a researcher uh, in uh, Munich, Thomas Hanich, contacted me by email. Um, Thomas, um, aside from being um, you know, a, 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 a researcher who was both you know, theoretically innovative and... Um, you know, has terrific quantitative skills. Um, he's a great organizer. So I first heard of Thomas uh, in ICA in, I think it's 2004 in, in Montreal, um, when he and uh, uh, several other colleagues um, called for the creation of a journalism studies group. And so I happened to be at that organizational meeting. Um, but after that, he created a, a network of journalism and communication researchers around the globe 
that had uh, done a pilot study. Uh, I think we ended up about 25 or 30 countries involved. They're national level surveys of journalism, and they're looking at occupational ideologies, um, uh, uh, you know, some some uh, issues of um, political trust and obviously demographic variables, um, gender. I think we could do more of. Um, but it's idea, you know, it's ideologies, it's, it's ethical um, orientations, and it's influences on work. Those are the primary primary areas of research. Um, and so they did this pilot study. A lot of interesting stuff uh, has come out of it. You can search it on Google Scholar or whoever you search. Um, there's also a web page. Um, that's probably the best place to go. Worldsofjournalism.org. Worldsofjournalism.org. Um, and so when he emailed me, you know, he asked if I'd like to take on Mexico. Um, they they had sort of established. Sally that. Hughes takes on Mexico. Yeah, Battle of I the know. Titans. <laughs> there are no holds barred, and there are no excuses given. Oh, I'd like to say Mexico absorbed me because it became really my 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 patria de corazón, if not of of birth. Um, so, you know, it's a, now a relationship. I first went to Mexico in, um, for the first time in 1992 and, and went, there to, I'm, went there to work in 93. So it's been a 20-year relationship. Um, time flies. Huh? Longer than I've ever managed with anybody. <laughs> Me too, actually. <laughs> so anyway, uh, long story short, uh, return to Mexico, um, you, know, all, you know, about eight years later, uh, or so after I, I left it intellectually, um, I didn't leave it. I mean, I kept going back, but the big project had ended, and boy, you know, the effervescence of the press and the hope, that, uh, you know, in the first years of the uh, of the new electoral democracy in Mexico had really changed. Yeah. Um, and we can talk more about that. I've been mm. I've been blabbing for a while, so if if you want me to go into why and what, I'd be, I'd be happy to give you my. <laughs> well, why don't we do that in a moment? First okay. of all, I'd love to know about some of the things that you discovered in Mexico as part of this project. Okay. Well, mm -hmm. I have to say we're not done yet. Oh. Uh, in fact, we, we, we've finished only about two-thirds of the sample. So um, just, you know, and, and it's, it's um, a national sample. It's meant to reflect the media system so that there can be these cross-national comparisons. Mm. Um, and in addition, and to me this is a very important part of the project, we'll be uh, looking at questions that arise um, from the data qualitatively. So, and that's, that's more where my grounding is, but the wonderful thing about mixed method studies is you, know, you can take that, that depth and try to generalize it. So, um, I mean, so, so just looking at newspaper and radio uh, journalists, um, you know, I've just in the last few days pulled a few things out of there, but uh, I can't go into much depth with it. Um, one is uh, what I um, what I think I might call sweatshop, sweatshop journalism. Yes, I heard you use this expression. Um, you know, I was just doing the overall tallies, general tallies of how many pieces or articles a day journalists produce, and it, it's six to nine. The, the reporters produce six to nine a day, and the editors, 15 to 20, they look at. So, you know, when you talk about journalism and democracy and, and, and contextualization and 
monitoring power and investigation. I mean, it's just not, it's, you can't do it. It's impossible. And the, the labor insecurity, and I haven't run this data yet, but just, you know, from some of the interviews that I did um, when we were piloting the questionnaire and, and, and also talking to other people more informally, you know, it, once you get out of the major news outlets, it, be, it can be a very informal sort of uh, labor contract. We talked to uh, a young journalist in Oaxaca, which is in southern um, Mexico, and um, I, she, I believe she was in the capital city, and she was, you know, basically paid by the piece, but it was um, a de facto permanent contract because, you know, it was, a, it was her stable employment and had been for two or three years. So... And she was, you know, and, and people talk about, and you know this probably better than I, but people talk about this utopia of, of you know, multiple platforms and, and you know, basically what she's doing is, is writing uh, the same story across two or three different platforms. So, so the labor insecurity is pretty, pretty deep, and that's something I want to explore. Um, so that's one aspect. The other aspect, which you know I presented yesterday, and which which is new, because like I said, I'm just looking at this data for the first time, and actually in a very limited way, because my my, my software program crashed, so I'm, <laughs> I'm using Excel. Um, my st my stats package crashed, so I'm, I'm just using some basic tabulations. But um, we asked about a, a wide Buenos series. Buenos dias, hola. Um, we asked about a wide, you know, variety of influences on the job, and you would expect, you know, with all the, the, the violence and external pressures, um, that that would be the most mentioned category. And in fact, when you look at what they, what journalists rank as, as having the most influence on their work, it's organizational factors, it's bosses, it's what they call the linea editorial. Um, and that is definitely something we're going to explore qualitatively because, you know, through sort of, you know, journalistic uh, lore, you think of that the linea editorial is the newspaper's orientation, but it's, it's much more than that because it, it can be, you know, it can be imposed or inferred. So if you go back to, you know, this wonderful study by uh, Breed, I, I, I'm, I'm losing my, I need another cafe connection, but it's, I think it's Walter Breed uh, in U.S. newsrooms in, in the 50s. Yeah, 1955. There you go. Um, you know, he talked about social control in the newsroom. So, so that's definitely something that's sort of underlying this, this concept of, um, of uh, linea editorial. And that comes out after personal ethics. And, and this is really interesting, too, um, access to information. Um, la linea editorial is the strongest influence. And more than the fear engendered by the dozens of journalists who've been assassinated as part of the narco wars. Right, right. Now, remember the sample. Um, the, um, the sample is national in origin. So... Uh, when we asked, uh, have you ever been threatened, or in the last five years have you, you've been, in threat been threatened, about 37% of the, uh, the population so far has said yes. Um, and then we followed up with a number of other questions, which I'll report to you next time. But um, it, so what we'll, what we'll need to do is really look in that population and see if these variables change. I'm sure they will. Right. But nationally, the, the sort of corpus of Mexican journalists, um, for them, the, the, the organizational factors and the, the 
functional, you know, uh, ethical and and sort of worldview are more important. Um, the we also asked a question about self censorship, and the um, at a first look, it's I, I think it's going to be obviously really correlated to this um, experience of threat because it was also right around 37%. So um, it's the first time that I know on a national scale that anybody's been able to quantify self censorship. It's it's always been anecdotal um, and you know it's sort of an obvious outcome of. of um, Terror. Yeah, of terror. So, uh, but as far as I know, on a national level, it's the first time it's quantified um, for what it's worth. Well, those are very striking findings, and I think being able to put them out like that is very important. I hope you can share that with people like the Committee to Protect Journalists. We absolutely will, and, and, and I have some contacts there. Joel Simon actually uh, was a colleague when I worked in Mexico, and now he's, he's head of, uh, you know, he's the director. Well, So I'm perfect. sure... It'll know. happen. So can we go back, back, back then to talk about you as a journalist? Can we yeah. take a step away from yeah, your professorial research, which obviously is informed by your own experience, but can you tell us a little bit about your time as a journalist? Sure. Um, I was, okay, so, so my, my story, I think, um, came out in a lot of the in-depth interviews, um, that I did with journalists in Mexico. There were similarities, but not with all of them, of course, but I do see this a lot. You know, your early ethical formation, where does it come from? Your parents, your, 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 you know, if, if you have a religious upbringing, um, you know, and many people I know break with that later in life, but, but I never did. You know, my parents were, um, uh, believe it or not, liberal Southern Democrats. <laughs> and, and I was raised <clears throat> in the North because my dad was a college professor. But, you know, there's always this sense of, that combined sort of a, um, a political, uh, uh, what today I guess we call progressivism, but in the 60s and the 70s, you know, um, was just sort of a, a, a liberal uh, U.S. stance, combined with, in their case, you know, this the idea of agape and, and love your neighbor and, and, you know, there for the grace of God. And I mention that not because I'm religious, actually, to my mother's great chagrin, I'm not, but, but that sort of ethical foundation is, is what I started with. Um, and then I was very uh, lucky to go into... Um, uh, a situation um, that I hope is still very vibrant in the U.S. And I think uh, I'm now at a university that has um, uh, a publication that's uh, part of the university student services, and, and they do some good work, but it didn't have that sort of ethos that, that I got at the University of Florida. So the University of Florida is the home of the independent Florida alligator, and it has this wonderful journalistic lore that uh, everyone who works there sort of um, absorbs. Uh, the, the newspaper was, was kicked off campus um, in the 70s because Florida had a law that you could not publish the addresses of uh, abortion clinics. Um, so uh, these, were, these were, you know, times where people were where, where, where the students were pushing back, and the editor, they'd written a story, uh, and it uh, contained the addresses, and the paper was censored, so they wrote it again, and they left black 
holes on the front page and it was against, you know, it was again censored. And so then the next time they went and they inserted the, the, the story, uh, you know, materially, physically in the newspaper after it had been delivered. And at that point, uh, the editor was, was arrested on a misdemeanor and they kicked the thing off campus. And the first place that it reopened was an old meat locker right across the street and behind a bar, which you couldn't find a better place, right? So that's, that's the, the birth of the independent Florida alligator. And I arrived, I arrived there in the 80s and, and worked my way up to, to editor. And I just can't imagine a better experience, right? The president at the time uh, called me a dissident and I was so proud. <laughs> Were you in the meat locker? Still. Actually, we'd moved by then. By then, we'd we'd gotten better digs. Uh, uh, they weren't better in the sense of lore and and drive, but but yeah, they were in the meat locker for about ten years. But by then, we had our our own more more you know, um, uh, more um, salubrious you know, surroundings. Exactly. Why did the president call you a dissident? The truth can now be told okay. here in the cultural studies podcast in Cartagena. The president of the University of Florida. Who was that? That's what I'm trying to remember. Ah, well. <laughs> I need more coffee. Clearly. I see his face. He's a forgotten man. He's a forgotten man. He was a lawyer from Palm Beach. That's enough. Uh, right. <laughs> it was actually over sports. Um, the NCAA had... National Collegiate Athletic Association, which is the entirely corrupt body which allegedly instills ethics into the even more corrupt world of what is basically socialism by stealth, i.e. public assistance for the indolent but not indigent bourgeoisie of the United States that runs professional football teams through the sponsorship of nursery systems in all major sports undertaken at public expense. Thank God for Tony. Toby. <laughs> Thank yeah. God for Toby. <laughs> the latest man whose name I've forgotten. Aye, Toby. Um, anyway, the anyway, government. they had they, they just slammed the university with all kinds of violations. It was it was because sometimes it's not as corrupt as right. Actually, <laughs> this was another era. There weren't there weren't corruption charges and 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 evidence at the time. The the same sort of abuse of exploitation of student athletes was going on. But um, well, that has never ended and never will. No, until they get paid. Exactly. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, so we were writing stories about that, and we were we were digging that out, and and this was while the investigation was still going on, and and this was a man who'd been hired to create an endowment, so you can imagine how he felt, right? So that's when we were called dissidents. So you were called uh, dissident, and what happened to you afterwards? You graduate despite I graduated being despite being called a dissident, and actually I'll have to hand it to him later that that during the the homecoming parade, we all stood there with signs that said dissidents, and he laughed at us. So he had a sense of humor. He was under a lot of pressure. Um, the uh, I got a, a, a job at, at the Miami Herald, and uh, even even prior to that, um, it was the 80s, um, we had the old uh, uh, printout, UPI wire. Um, United Press International, one of the big wire agencies providing international and national news at the time. So every time something big would happen, there'd be ding, 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 ding. And there was a ding, 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 when there were reports that uh, there were missiles on a Soviet something headed to Managua, and we were going in. And this came over the wire, and at that point, you know, at that point I had... Um, 
had sort of a typical American upbringing of lots of, maybe this isn't so typical, but lots of Spanish in high school. I'd done a summer abroad in, in Uruguay. And my, I, you know, my, my interests were always um, sort of international. And, um, you know, I wanted to go. I mean, I was, I, I was on my way to the airport, but uh, when you're 19, <laughs> uh, my father said no, and I was still an obedient Southern girl, so I didn't go. But I, I had that interest. And when I got to the Miami Herald, you know, there were reporters um, from all over the Caribbean working there, and I, you know, was both inspired by them, but I also um, knew I wasn't going there. So that's when I went back, and I wasn't going to be able to, to compete on that level because, you know, I hadn't had the experience. So I did, you know, I did a master's in Latin American studies and I went for Mex to Mexico for the first time. That was in the mid-90s. Um, and that's when I worked for a uh, English language newspaper that was within a Mexican newspaper that still exists. The Mexican, the, the Spanish newspaper, Spanish language newspaper still exists. It's called El Financiero. They closed the, the English language weekly. Um, um, after, I don't know, after about five or six years. This was the time of NAFTA. So again, it was a really interesting time. This the North was American Free Trade Agreement between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. Thanks for that. Tratado de Libre Comercio. Thanks for that. Yeah, it was also, you know, the rise of the Zapatista Rebellion in Chiapas in southern Mexico. Uh, it was the first assassination of a presidential candidate since the 1920s in Mexico. Uh, Luis Donaldo Colosio. I just got an email from somebody you know, memor uh, you know, in memorial 20 years later. Wow. So it was very interesting, and, and, and I also got to see from the inside out um, the changes that were happening in the Mexican press um, um, and, you know, the pressures they were under. Um, I remember after, after Colosio was shot, I got a call from a worried publisher saying, you know, we, we can't do anything to hurt Mexico. Well, what does that mean? Well, we just can't do anything to hurt Mexico. Well, what does that mean? I was really lucky because I, I covered politics. So we did have, you know, we, we printed a story um, at that time. Well, you know, journalism can be fun. We printed a story soon after I got there. And I, like I said, I was really lucky to cover politics. And we went to this you know, little state on the West Coast called Nayarit. And um, the, the electoral fraud was just so obvious. So, so the, the opposition, um, which is the, the PRD, the, the, it's hard to characterize. It's, it should be center left. Um, <laughs> and at the time it was. And certainly in Nayarit, it was, it was the left opposition. And Partido Revolucionario Democrático. De la Democracia. Yeah, exactly. PRD. PRD. Great history there, but um, you know they gave us they gave us you know uh, copies of voter ID cards, which the government had just spent like nine hundred million dollars on, and you know to satisfy all the international organizations, and 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 there were this was obviously the same guy, you know, and he had three different three different IDs, and so we just collected you know pretty easily <laughs> evidence like that, and and the front page of the of the paper was you know these two these two IDs, and, and, and the headline was One Man, Two Votes, and then we wrote about, you know, we began writing about fraud in these local elections, and supposedly that had ended in the 80s because now Salinas was president, and they'd spent, you know, all this money and hired all these international experts to make the system work so the system wouldn't crash again, you know? So they got really nervous about that, the, the, the 
the publisher got really nervous about that. No doubt had a call from Gobernacion. And it's not that we were any big deal. We weren't. We did have uh, academic readers in the U.S. A lot of professors read us. A lot of business people read us. Surely, probably the State Department. Somebody had a subscription. But, you know, we weren't. But, but she was very nervous about that. So, so you know, that really piqued my interest. Um, plus, I worked a lot of alongside a lot of really wonderful Mexican journalists who would talk about, you know, especially the young ones, um, you know, different ethical orientations. Um, some from Jesuit training, others from a leftist political stance. Um, um, some were trained by some of the early independent journalists and just sort of absorbed this this, you know, this um, ethos of, um, of uh, I, I called it civic journalism in my book, and it's different from the U.S. civic, and, and some people have criticized me for that, but you know what, it's, it's civic journalism a la Mexicana, it comes out of the citizenship movement, the change of discourse, the demand for rule of law that, that drove part of the Mexican transition, and because the journalists were using that same vocabulary and were moved by it, the one most of the ones that I that I got close to at that time. So, so that was the '90s, right? And 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 that was really fun. In the end, I decided, um, you know, we can talk about this if you want to, but I, I did apply for a couple of immigration jobs back in the states with newspapers, and you know, I, I got the idea that that wasn't going to happen. That you had to be Hispanic, <laughs> you know, and, and I would say, and then actually, you know, I had a discussion with one West Coast newspaper editor, who I'm not going to name because this was one person, and I want to embarrass the whole newspaper, but he's like, you know, we just get pressured to hire to hire a Latino, and I, I understand that, and, and certainly, you know, I'm, I think that, that we have to level out um, these imbalances and ethnicity in, in the newsroom, and, which we still have not done. Um, but the Latino can cover the president, right? The Latino can cover the big banks. So for whatever reason, that didn't work out. And I, um, I decided I would go back to grad school and do my PhD because I loved uh, it. And um, that's, that's all history now. The rest is history. Oh, it's a wonderful story. <laughs> now, you mentioned to me yesterday a new book. Mm -hmm. Could you perhaps... As we bring this more or less to a close, sure. because I think you have an appointment with a rector or a decano coming up, could you perhaps tell us a wee bit about this new volume? I'd be happy to. Um, this, um, I think for, for many um, academics, um, but certainly not for all, um, we want to engage um, the issues that are surrounding us. Um, um, many times universities are quite se separated from their environment, right? But but for whatever reason, I, I've never been able to do that and don't think we necessarily should do that. Um, so living in Miami and, and, and working at the University of Miami, um, it's impossible to ignore um, both the... Um, hierarchies that have ar arised in Miami that are similar to global cities elsewhere, economic uh, structures like um, weak middle class, you know, weak middle class, great wealth, uh, a lot of poverty, um, um, also sort of a spatial segregation of the city, 
um, also, um, you know, a real hierarchy, um, and this, this makes Miami a little different, um, a hierarchy within uh, immigrant groups that is based on, um, of course, legal status, um, but also when you dig down under, underneath um, its type of visa and legal status and country of origin and race and perceived social class um, and real social class. Um, so along with two sociologist colleagues, um, and we met at the University of Miami as new professors in 2002, we said, you know, we want to do something this on this. And it started to be a, a study of transnationalism, you know, transnational living. By transnational, I mean, you know, it, it, not only as some people define it, like real material connections to other geographic spaces, but the creation of, of a, uh, an imaginary and a social space that is simultaneously uh, in more than one place, mm -hmm. right? So, so we started looking at this, and um, we ended up collecting a hundred in-depth interviews, over a hundred in-depth interviews. We have uh, 15 uh, different focus groups. We look at eight, eight different um, national origin groups, all of immigrants who have, who have arrived uh, since uh, 1986, sort of an arbitrary cutoff in the sense that we wanted it to incorporate, you know, the big um, uh, Immigration Control and Reform Act, IRCA, um, that they gave uh, amnesty to a couple million Mexicans and another million others. Um, and, uh, but it also was a time that the Cuban population in Miami had been there long enough and had turned its politics um, uh, inward and was at that point really beginning to win political seats in Miami. Um, and that's about the time when uh, a guy named Alejandro Cortez and, and Alex Stepik a sociologist at, at FIU, both sociologists. Florida International University. Correct. Um, you know, we're researching and then soon came out with their Miami City on the Edge book, which, which talked about uh, Miami as a place where um, uh, the Cuban population did not have to uh, assimilate um, in the old sort of way of looking at assimilation to the degree that uh, Latinos and, other part, and immigrants in other parts of the U.S. had, because they had created really um, a parallel system of institutions, and even back then you could notice um, something that they called reverse acculturation, which was um, Anglos seeing the need and wanting to learn Spanish and taking on certain cultural traits. So in the 20 years, you know, uh, since then, um, that trend has certainly accelerated. But um, now, you know, Cubans are definitely the dominant or predominant political group in Miami. Um, and the rest of the Latino population has diversified greatly. So the Latino population and Latin American population is much more diverse. Um, uh, it, the Anglo Saxon population um, has decreased numerically. Um, and interestingly enough, in, has um, uh, residentially mixed with uh, the early waves of Cubans who tend to be more affluent and more uh, acculturated in a sort of biculturation sort of way um, because they maintain both. Um, um, 
but they've also, Anglos have also sort of retreated residentially to these newly formed municipalities. Um, you see, you see the, the incorporation of a number of new city, new, new small cities that are predominantly Anglo. Beyond that, Miami is a is is a minority majority city where 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 the minority majority is Latino and the, and the majority of those are Cuban. It is it is a Latino is uh, it's a Latino city. Um, it's not a it's not a city with a Latino enclave. It's it's a Latino city. And more than half the city's population born outside the United States. Correct. And often regarded demographically and ideally by Latin American sociologists as a Latin American city. It's also one of the places where wealthy people from Latin America go as a good entrepot for when they do their shopping in Europe, but also as a place where their children are not going to be kidnapped whilst still running their businesses in Venezuela or wherever it may be. Absolutely. And because it's a majority of Latinos, it, it's obvious once you mention it, but, but people don't necessarily think of it, especially because that picture of Miami that you just presented is it's, it's true, but it's not complete. Um, you can. You, you, what we did was break open the, the Latino category and see these hierarchies: economic, legal, racial. And what happens is, when we ask people, you know, the simple question, um, um, you know, how do people get along in Miami? That's when these, you know, we don't even mention ethnicity and national origin groups, but that's when these these hierarchies come out. Um, when they talk about when those who lived elsewhere in the um, talk about living elsewhere. Um, when the referent is outside of Miami, then we get perceptions, more perceptions of Latino unity, sort of this pan-Latino idea that some have talked about. Um, we also get uh, more mentions of this, a sense of, of white privilege and, dis and perceived discrimination, perceived or real. But when we turn the, the focus to Miami, then, then, then we get um, what we call Cuban privilege. Because it, there does seem to be, well, not seem to be, there is a, a, a sense among the non-Cuban immigrants that, that Cubans are privileged by legal status, um, by, by their occupational and political uh, predominance. Um, and and it's, it's, it's really interesting because, on the one hand, they're drawn to Miami because of the traits that are shared. They like to be able to, to shop in Spanish and... And yes, there's a utilitarian aspect to it, but there's also an emotional aspect to it. People say we come to Miami because it feels like home and it's closer to home. But when they turn the reference inward, then then these other other issues arise. So mm -hmm. so you know, we have a, no, a number of other uh, things that have come out that are quite interesting. We look at we look at um, the phenomenon both in Latin America and uh, the trip to Miami and the settlement in Miami as affected, as, as a product of risk, um, all sorts of, of, of insecurities arose in Latin America in the 80s and 90s, not only economic but political. And, and one thing that we found very really interesting is, is social insecurity, especially among women. Women, by the time they're 40, 45 in Latin America, they're their um, uh, romantic possibilities, if they're divorced, their, their um, uh, economic opportunities um, become very limited. It wasn't uh, too long ago in Colombia that the retirement age for women um, in the public sector was 50. 
So, so we, we did among our, uh, the people we interviewed, you know, find a lot of discussion of, of you know, uh, from the women of, you know, I, I, I was divorced, I, you know, my kids were now in college, I, I thought my life would be over, but I had this way to go to Miami, my sister was there, I had some way to get there. And so I'm here, you know, trying to overcome that insecurity. But of course, when they get to Miami, they, they, they face a whole different set of insecurities, including anti-immigration rhetoric, including the hierarchies we mentioned. So, so the book is, is about uh, basically how, how economic globalization and neoliberalism, uh, especially, but not only, sort of shifted risks, um, causing pools of immigrants um, to decide to leave, and then sort of the shifting of, of, of insecurities when you arrive in Miami. So, so, you know, legal insecurities, downward mobility for the wealthy but not the poor. Um, um, different um, constructions of race, um, so that people who, who never considered themselves uh, negatively racialized in their home countries suddenly found themselves, you know, in an entirely different situation, mm -hmm. right? And, and this was a real shock to, to a number of them. So, so, so we talk about that, and we end the book with um, this uh, search for emotional well-being and, and what we call ontological security um, by trying to stay connected to home, uh, and, the, and especially the cultural group of home, uh, as well as your intimate others, those those who you know you, you find most nurturing to your to your well-being, um, and we we this really and 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 the strategy they use is really um, uh, multiple senses of co-presence, right? So so both um, imagination used through media product stimulation, um, uh, 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 virtual co-presence through through the internet, social media, uh, Skype. Telephone, face-to-face, um, -face, you know, trips. If if you you have the resource of mobility, trips and visits. Not everybody did. Um, and then you know, co-presence by proxy. And this is sort of embedding yourself in that in, in a similar cultural group in Miami. And what we find found from taking these ideas and testing them quantitatively is those who are able to, you know, to integrate in Miami at the same time that they maintain their home hometown and, and home country ties are the ones that have better outcomes um, in terms of happiness. So it was, it was kind of interesting because the, 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 the uh, qualitative discussion was so strong that, you know, I feel good when I'm um, listening to, to the radio in Creole or, or, you know, I can see my mother when she's learned to Skype, you know, but, but it's not that people who are completely embedded in the homeland have lower levels of, of this measure of happiness, right? It's, it's, it's intuitively interesting and, and probably obvious, but, but the statistical evidence really, really suggests that, you know, you know, set down roots, but don't lose your past. And who are your co-authors, Okay, thank you for that. Um, two wonderful people. Uh, Elizabeth Aranda is Chair of Sociology at the University of South Florida, and Elena Sabogal is in the Women's Studies and Sociology Departments in um, William Patterson University in New Jersey. And the name of the book? The name of the book is Making a Life in Multi-Ethnic Miami, Immigration and the Rise of a Global City. It's at Lynn Reiner Press. So very look good it up. publisher of international politics, for example. Well, Sally, thank you very much. We've had a somewhat short podcast due to this next meeting, but actually we got through a heck of a lot. Thank you so much You're for being very so kind, generous though. with your time. And let's, as you suggested make a date at least provisional 
to get together once all the results are in from this big survey you've done, comparative of Mexico and other countries with a number of scholars, and get the scoop on that. Thanks, Toby. Great.